Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as John Wood, owner of U.S. Wellness Meats, joins us for a great chat, including looking back to ancient African grasslands to reignite the microbes in our ailing fields, educating consumers to make better food choices. Grass-feeding takes more time, but it does way more good for Mother Earth. Food is medicine. Know your food. Know your farmer. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast from a secret location in beautiful Ohio. Ohio, November. It was actually warm yesterday. Daniele Bellelli's over there. We're sitting in the backyard again. Birds are singing. It doesn't suck out here, and I love how you managed through all this time to figure out the audio level so that this can be our podcasting studio outdoors, sunny sky. Life could be worse. Life could be definitely worse. Yeah, it sure could be. Yeah. So let's jump into it. Today we are going to have as a guest Mr. John Wood from grasslandbeef.com and we're going to chat about anything from uh, regenerative agriculture to environmentally sustainable animal husbandry to soil regeneration to you name it. So we are ready for strapping for that conversation. Before we do, let's say a few thank yous. Thank yous to, hey, grasslandbeef.com. How's that work? <laughs> That's, uh, but, you know, you leer for an hour about it, so we'll go into that there. In terms of other folks that we want to say hi and thank you to, uh, Shore Design T-shirts, who have been fantastic to us all along from the very, very early days of the Drunken Taoist. Also oh, true. Nine years ago. Wow. Actually, uh, ten with this episode. Is it going to be, well, the beginning of your ten, yes, that is correct. Amazing. Uh, zebraathletics.com thank you so much for the beautiful mats that are in my garage I saw those mats in action last time yeah after Dan Miller did his interview y'all were they were whipping each other man yeah it's very yeah. violent it looks uh, why, why can't we just be friends it looks highly homoerotic but yes I wasn't gonna say it but that is the case yes I was shocked I was like oh I'm sorry gentlemen I thought this was the bathroom. You know, that's actually one thing that's pretty funny. Because uh, <clears throat> you forget, like after you do jiu-jitsu for a while, you forget. And then when you see the face of a new guy, huh. when you're like, okay, lay down, open your legs, let me get there. And there's a moment there where they look at you like, uh, what? And it's What's like, about to happen? It's guard. That's where you yeah, fight yeah. from. What's the problem? I don't I was it's, uncomfortable when we had to mount one another in yeah, gym class yeah, in 12th yeah. grade. So, mm. That's the gig. But um, yeah, Who's so, coaching this shit? So, oh, Jim Jordan. <laughs> oh, it all makes sense all of a sudden. So on that note, thank you to Zebra Athletics. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, thank you to the folks keeping the drunk in the drunken Taoist, Aum Sellers, who sent me just some of his fantastic wines. I can't wait to see. I'm still in my 40-day cleans. I think I'm around day 30 or so. He's a desperate sort of and, look in his uh, eye. I'm turning into a, a pork chop. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, um, no, I'm back to, I can eat meat again now after the two weeks vegan, but uh, but I'm still uh, missing some nice bread or a glass of wine. That shall be fixed soon. Mm. And also thank you to materrawines.com. Thank you, of course, to the sweet folks parting with their hard-earned money to donate. So here we go. Let the pottering begin. Froggy Style Productions, Stephen Redos, Caleb Winkle, Eric Adam Collins, Yanni Linnima, Luis Pesquera, Jesse Rantacangas, Federico Rossi, Donald Chipwitten, Lane Raper, Dodds and Ariel Hall, 
Aaron Weisner, John Vergara, Istis Juska, Thomas Robinson, Zeke, Nick Zunick, Lisa Robles, Frederick Hahn, Stephen McKee, Jonathan Waterloo, Christopher Parcel, Clayton Payne, Austin Stilwell, Andre Garapetian, and Nicola Tony. I don't Damn think we nation. ever had that many people in one time. I'm humbled. I know, it's sweet. It's so kind. It's very, very sweet. So we love you deeply. If you want to join this brave band, Sofiro, uh, paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, paypal.me forward slash the letter D, the letter B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Or, as always, um, I think fewer and fewer people order on Amazon through computers. They all do it through the... I don't know what the hell has changed, but basically our Amazon link income has basically dwindled down to downright nothing. They're just afraid to order. They know it's all sitting offshore yeah, in but, cargo ships. But if you are ordering from Amazon, uh, <laughs> using our link would be yes. very sweet. So please do so. And uh, anything else we want to throw out there before we get going? Did you did you did you see Adele do her special from the Griffith Observatory on I the TV not, two days but ago? But I heard about it. Man, it looked great. And what's hysterical is I was hiding up on the roof the whole time. So I know that's that's I'm why you heard it sure, from. I'm pretty sure I identified myself in one shot. Really, where you're like, hey, <laughs> you know, it's actually a dot crouching down as right. to not be seen, but the helicopter caught me. Hey, nice, good deal. But it was ridiculous. She's a hell of a singer. Oh She's my God. really really good. And all the fancy folks were there, except for those of us hiding on the roof. And um, I just love seeing my telescope dome lit so nicely. Beautiful. To well, sling that 9,000-pound telescope around, oddly similar to what I have in my backyard, but at the same time, it's a historic piece of equipment looked through by more people than any telescope in the world. It's almost that's crazy. It's over 7 million people have looked through that thing. Because in case you guys haven't caught on, Rich is now working at the Griffith Observatory, which is quite a sweet deal. I like it a lot. Fantastic. We'll brag more about it later, but I just think, just because it was on TV literally two nights ago, it was like... Perfect. They did a nice job. And I had to sneak up there because I didn't have any credentials, so that's a whole other story from another Oops. time. Oops. All right, y'all. Here we go. Episode 209. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here we roll. Mr. John Wood from Grassland Beef, the man himself, is here in our Ojai garden. John, very welcome. Well, I'm honored to be here and appreciate the hospitality and look forward to a great conversation this morning and uh, and been listening to your podcast for a long time. It's kind of fun to be sitting here at the, at the right. real table of knowledge. Now, now you are part of it. Now you are... It's, thank you so much for making the drive, by the way, because, you know, John flew into L.A., but from L.A. to Hawaii, it's a bit of a hike. No. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad we were able to make this. This is a, We tried already like two or three times, and every time it was like, pandemic hit. Oh, we can't do that. And then something, it was like... The fire one time. Yeah, it was the fire. <laughs> That's right. It was really bad with the fire. So it's like all sort of natural design. Now I'm looking around just to make sure we're good, right? Okay, we got to record. I guess one thing that I'm curious about, just to get the ball rolling, and I'm sure we can go in different direction later, but just to get the ball rolling. Um, one thing that when talking about meat products, when talking about a lot of people get, once they look at what happens sort of behind, uh, behind the scenes, they get freaked out by factory farming because of the conditions, both in terms of the, what's the life of the animals as well as uh, the health, the dubious health of the conditions in which they are raised and all of that. Clearly what you have been working on is a very different model. So I would love to hear kind of like how, I guess, a little bit of your story, how you get to be part of this, how you got into it, and then how all of this stuck up against the traditional factory farming. My story is interesting. I'm a fifth-generation farmer in northeast Missouri. My 
great-great-grandparents moved into our county in 1848, a long time ago. Very resourceful people, intelligent, uh, very well written. It's amazing. You look at some of the letters that are written back in the Civil War era and how, how good their language was mm-hmm. and skills were. I went through a normal, you know, small farm childhood and grew up with uh, my parents and a sister. And we actually, uh, we had an acre, acre and a half of garden. We milked our own cows. We produced beef. And, uh, um, you know, so I had a really sheltered life when it comes, when it came to good food as a small child. But I went went off to college. I went off to Iowa State and got a degree in farm management and came back into uh, my uncle's family business at that time. It was a large farm. We 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 raised a lot of cattle, and uh, I did that from about 1975 to 2000. Interesting enough, we were in the business of raising animals on grass and finishing them on grain. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but we took very good care of those animals, we as best as we could. And most people in the commercial cattle business, you know, animal husbandry is still kind of the linchpin. But I read Alan Savory in about 1992 or three. If you go to TED Talks and type in Alan Savory, he's a fascinating guy, still alive. I know his son well, and uh, and I read that, and it it kind of kind of a life changing experience. Uh, when you realize if you go back to northern Africa uh, before man came along, it was a sea of just strictly grassland. There were, there were no deserts across northern Africa. And the animals that were being raised there were the zebras, the giraffes, the gazelles, a lot of the things you see in a safari today. But they were managed by predators, believe it mm-hmm. or not. And so these predators forced those animals to, to graze in a bunch and dung and urinate in a bunch and move on. That was just a natural cycle. And so it worked perfectly for eons. And then man came along, and he was being hunted by the same predators, so the predators had to be removed, so he felt a little bit safer. And once the predator pressure dropped off, then all of a sudden you had overgrazing and overrest. Mm-hmm. And even in the 1970s on our pastures, I noticed areas where the cattle would graze them down just like a yard. And then five feet away, you had grass six or eight, 12 inches tall. And I wondered, why Why is this? Yeah. I was puzzled by it. And um, and after reading Savory, then a the light kind of came on. And he was uh, an interesting character. He was a Sandpoint, Sandhurst graduate, which is like our West Point out of out of out of out of England. And they sent him to Rhodesia after his military uh, time was up, and he was asked to stop desertification. Mm-hmm. And they gave him 20,000 hectares to experiment with. Yep. And so he went in and, and killed off half the elephants, half the giraffes. He thought it was an overpopulation problem, but it just got worse. And then he read some work by Voisin, who was a Frenchman who wrote Grass Productivity, and he was like, he was a genius. He was 50 years ahead of his time. In fact, my father saw Voisin experiments in France. They actually had people standing up on a pole taking notes by hand, watching animals graze in a concentrated area. And Voisin had figured this out before anybody else. And then there was a South African philosopher. His name was Smuts, S-M-U-T-S, and he wrote um, he wrote a book about how everything that we do affects everybody around us. Mm-hmm. It's called Holism. It was the yep. name of the book, Holism. So Savory kind of patched that together and realized, you know, this is all about grazing management. So he took the 20,000 hectares, he took beef cattle, and he put 100,000 pounds of stock density per acre, moved them every day, actually had to feed hay to get enough carbon out there. And after about a year and a half, the native prairie came back. Mm -hmm. And and he was on the banks of a river that looked like the Missouri River. It's a pretty good-sized river in Rhodesia. And about the time he got this early cooking, the uh, Afrikaners decided to throw the British out of Rhodesia. He was uh, he had owned land. He was in the parliament, and he sided with the Afrikaners. He knew they were going to win. At 2 in the morning, one of his friends tapped him on the shoulder and said, Al, you need to get out of here. They're going to execute you tomorrow at dawn. He was able to fly fighter jets. He actually had a couple of extra skill sets. <laughs> and he flew out of uh, flew out of Rhodesia about 2 o'clock in the morning, and the Lasseter family in the United States sponsored him. He came to the United wow. States. So it's a, it's a, it's a made-for-movie story. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of what got me motivated. And then I read about uh, Dr. Mike Parisa, who was a researcher at the University of Wisconsin in the 1980s. He had figured out there was something in beef that was actually killing cancer cells. Mm. And the experiment was they were looking at 
charboiling ground beef, and they thought something in the charcoal was going to cause cancer. What they found, there was some compound in beef that was actually killing the cancer cells. Mm. There's a little bit of it in grain-fed beef because most animals are on mama's milk and grass to six or 800 pounds. The grass-fed animals got a lot more of this, and it's called CLA, conjugated linoleic acid. Fights cancer, fights diabetes, uh, takes off fat, puts on lean muscle, and, uh, and actually fights diabetes. So if you go back to 1900 in the United States, and the author of the book was a 100-year lie by John Fitzgerald, who I was a customer of ours in the early 2000s, and in 1900, 2% of us were diabetic, and there was no discussion on heart disease and cancer at the major medical schools. It wasn't until after 1910 when the Cargill Corporation changed through plant breeding the wheat that we were making bread out of, and they added more starch to the, to the, to the wheat, had to make it easier in the mill. And once we changed the bread that Americans started eating in 1910 through 1923, I think 1923 is the first written evidence of heart disease by the Mayo Clinic. They first Mm -hmm. started talking about heart disease. And so the unintended consequences of making life easier for Cargill was making life more miserable. And if you look at Argentina, before they started feeding grain to cattle about 15 years ago, they had the highest red meat consumption in the world much lower instances of diabetes and, and cancer than we have in this country. So red meat was being blamed for a lot of problems. But uh, but if you go back to my ancestors, my grandfather, my father's side lived to be 99 years of age, never took a pharmaceutical, uh, milked his own cow till he was like 90 and had his own, he was a pastor, outstanding minister, and he had a large commercial church garden. And he, uh, he, he just lived... And he could quote the Gettysburg Address at age 99. He was, <laughs> quote poetry, Mark Twain. He was a fascinating guy. But, uh, and, and, and he wrote a diary, and it's a fascinating diary at his death. Some of the cousins and I split up the, the books of that. But he commented about what they ate, you know. It was seasonal, yeah. and it was shared. And uh, the one thing on the table at every meal was, was lard mm-hmm. and sourdough bread, and they ate a lot of fat. And what I've learned in my life in the last 20 years is the grass-fed animal fats are extremely healthy for humans. We've, we've been told a bad lie for the last 25 or 30 years. And the more, the more of the good fats you eat, the longer you're going to live. Do you feel like sugar will probably be the next tobacco, the way they forced it down us? Well, I think sugar is probably worse than tobacco, to be real honest. It really is. Because the young people in today's America, we, we give a couple of tours in our business because we have a meat fabrication facility, marketing facility, and I tell young people today, you'll be the first generation that will not outlive your parents. You ask them if they know what uh, you know know about the dangers of sugar, MSG, and all those sort of issues. I think the Americans are starting to wake up to the dangers of sugar. Uh, you know, you're starting to see the, the food companies trying to advertise sugar-free substances. But I had a, my oldest daughter suggested about 2005 or six, Dad, take all the sugar out of your sausages, and we did that, and we doubled sales, almost boom. And I didn't realize how powerful the sugar-free social media community is. It oh, is yeah. huge, it's massive. <clears throat> of course. So the uh, sugar is just a hideous compound. It's funny here since we have a lot of Mexican culture out here, their baked goods, it looks like it's going to be sweet like something we have, but they don't use a lot mm-hmm, of sugar, mm-hmm. but it's still delicious. And once you get away from that, you know, syrupy, sweet, just garbage that we right. think we're being healthy. Yeah. Here, have some cranberry juice. It's good mm-hmm. for you. No, it's worse than a soda. No, it's interesting. We actually worked really hard about 15 years ago, and we, we actually have a pork bacon that's sugar-free. Mm-hmm. The only ingredient is sea salt. We really had to lobby USDA. This was like a 1700s cure, which it used to. They would cure uh, bacon in salt brine, and they would hang it up in the smokehouse, you know, and, and, and that's how they cured things. And, and that bacon's the number one seller we have. It's amazing. what. Uh, and, and by taking the sugar out, we really, if you have the good, tasty, high-quality fats, food tastes fantastic. You don't need it. Do you have smokehouses? And what scale? Because I saw your incredible refrigeration right. freezing area. Yeah, we actually we actually uh, have two or three. We have three third-party folks that have smokehouses, and they all do different things. We have one of them that makes our organ sausages, and another company does the pemmican, which is a Native American. We're the only mm-hmm. manufacturer in the United States of beef pemmican made by you know true Native American standards. And uh, it's delicious, by the way. And uh, <laughs> we, thank you very much. No, we've had lots of fun with that. And, and when I travel, I actually. Live 
live on pemmican. I ate the last of my pemmican bars this morning. <laughs> but uh, you know, you got a two point one ounce, you know, stick of uh, you know forty five percent fat, fifty five percent jerky, and it's just two hundred plus calories and eleven or twelve grams of protein. It's just almost like a magic food. Isn't it amazing that wave of the nineties of all the fat food stuff mm-hmm. that was going to help people lose weight, and all it did was mm-hmm. make their lives worse. They just ate more carbs, and they just they, they, yeah, they just blew up like balloons. You go back to treasonous offenses. I mean, there's a handful of the corporate food companies got together, and they turn that food pyramid upside down, primarily because of money. They could make a lot more money selling carbs and sugar and carbs, and they could proteins, and that's why they, they flipped that thing upside down. And, and the consequences, you know, I'm lucky. I'm 68 years of age. I have original knees, hips, elbows, joints. I don't have any aches or pains, no arthritis. And I've taken sugar out of my diet, and I've added a lot of fat, and I feel like I'm good for another another 20 years. No, you can definitely live off of cabbage and bacon grease quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the sugar, I guess, would you say, yeah, I think we all agree, well, not all, unfortunately, but I think it's like if anybody who does a little research realize that, yeah, so much of the sugar that we consume is just poison straight up. Would you say, what's your take on the sugar coming from fruit or things like raw honey? Is that like on the acceptable end or not so much? If you really want to preserve yourself, um, we work with a lady. In fact, she's the number one leptin expert in the world. Mm-hmm. Her name is Kat with a K, James. She's a fascinating lady, has a website called Inform Beauty. We've sponsored her programs for since 2003. She locks people up for five days. No sugar, no honey, no fruits. And she uh, provides our high-fat foods, and and she makes them. She can make brownies that look like brownies, and they actually are not, you know, 100% safe for you. And she, I never really drank her Kool-Aid really well, because <laughs> uh, I like blackberries and raspberries yeah. and those sort of things. In 2016, I actually sponsored one of her events. I actually rented the property near Kansas City, and I went away. I went away there. I couldn't do five days. I did three days, and I lost seven pounds in three days. I weighed on our USDA scale going over and come back. I can wow. tell I felt different. But when you've got to take it all out. Mm-hmm. Even even like a, there's some supplements that you get a little glass bottle of an herbal thing. It's got a little bit of alcohol in it. She says you can't even do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you, you got to. But if you take it all out for 72 hours, you'll be surprised how you feel. And I'm down 30 pounds from where I was. And then, I, and then last year, a year ago, in the end of September, I went up to Kalispell, Montana, where she had an event, and I was there for four, four and a half out of the five days. And I came back and got really serious. I didn't have any weak moment till on my property this summer. I have blackberries, and I thought, you know, I'm going to be a bad boy for a couple of days. <laughs> right. I, I say, watermelon is my weakness. There's just uh, no way. Yeah. Life's too short. I'm going to have to have a little bit of that. Just, oh, my God. But but if you really want to be a warrior, you know you need to you need to cut it all out. I hate to tell people that, but right. if you, but if you I had I sent two employees to this event after I saw I had one new new hire that was she was having some health issues. She had lupus. She had blood pressure issues. She had breathing problems, and she was a little bit overweight. And now she's actually been written up in better nutrition. She's dropped about 65 pounds. She no longer has lupus. She no longer has uh, has weight issues. She no longer has heart issues, breathes normally. She's the happiest woman I've ever seen. She's 52 or 3 years of age. and But she's a poster child for that. And, and she was old enough and wise enough to make the choices, you know, to, to live that lifestyle. And once you get in the habit, once you figure out how to do the food prep on it, you know, it's not that. And it tastes good, you know. It's uh you've got to avoid alcohol that's a lot of people that's a problem but once you get that off makes it makes me cry <laughs> little wine it just yeah, feels wine, good <laughs> yeah but once you once you break those habits you don't really i don't have an interest right. in drinking a beer anymore you know I, I i i don't miss it one bit isn't it crazy how our advertising makes it seem like there's no way you'll have a good time unless mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm, a beer in your hand mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the way they tie it to sports is just oh, yeah. like insane yeah we were doing some work with UCLA and the Rose Bowl properties, and we were at the game yesterday, and, and I saw a lot of beer being served, and I'm I noticed sure. people how they got happier, you know, after right. the after the end of few They were still beers. sad at the end yeah. of the game. <laughs> now, that could have been an epic epic victory if that would have turned out differently in the last 15 seconds. That yeah. would have been a story for the ages if they'd pulled that off. But, uh, so what would you say, like, for example, if you have to give a typical your typical day of eating? And, of course, uh, it changes day to day, week mm-hmm. to week, and all of it, but, like, what would you say, like, if you take us through one day of yours, uh, what do you eat? Well, I start off in the morning. Of course, I've got 
you know, I, I still work way too many hours a week and I'm super busy. So I just use, I just use, I either have pemmican. I kind of go between two pemmican bars for breakfast or I will, I will do egg. Uh, I have a recipe of two eggs um, and, and butter mm-hmm. uh, and I'll make a scramble out of that. So I eat, I eat lots of butter. Mm-hmm. My butter consumption would scare most people <laughs> and I want all that fat. And uh, I'll add a little bit of monk fruit, uh, vanilla or lemon, which flavors those eggs and a little bit of uh, cinnamon or or uh, uh, pumpkin spice, which is a non-alcoholic spice, and I'll, and I make the best scrambled eggs in the world. When I have time, I'll do that two or three days a week. When I'm in a hurry, I do the pemmican. My daily, you know, I'm on the run, so I'll take cacao wafers, which is pure fat, and I'll 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 uh, snack on those in a day when I need a little extra fat. In fact, when I get out of bed in the morning, I take cacao wafers first thing. I want fat in the stomach before I go to bed, and and and, and right at bedtime, mm-hmm. you want to you want to end the day with a little dose of fat. So. And then uh, my main meal of the evening is, uh, you know, some spring organic greens, and I'll add some cucumbers, I'll add uh, some olive oil, I'll add some grated cacao butter, uh, three ounces of a six-ounce hamburger patty. The hamburger patty is a little fatter than most people consume. It's a 55% lean patty. I cook it on a glass plate and a flavor wave oven or a turbo wave oven so I can pour all the grease into that salad. Mm-hmm. And I'll add uh, some blue cheese, and uh, I make kind of a gourmet meal out of that. What's monk fruit? Monk fruit is a... That's, that's not a jackfruit, right? No, it's not a jackfruit. Monk fruit is a, I don't know what I call a Cat Jane's approved seasoning, but it's uh, uh, it's it's in the plant world. I don't know the raw ingredients of it, but M-O-N-K, monk fruit, and there's a couple different flavors of it. But, I mean, if you're diabetic, that's what you should use, you know, if you if you got issues like diabetes. Something that I discovered through the, through the Cat James meetings. What's a day on the farm like? Are you still out there? I want to back it off... Because we were talking earlier about the, the applied multi-paddock, which is very much what you guys are doing. Right. How many acres a day are you doing how many heads? My farm, I'm still active in all areas. Uh, farm is my therapy late in the day. I, I leave the office and I go see my animals for a couple of hours. And we have two or three groups of cattle we move around. But it's not uncommon to have 150 animals on maybe two acres for 24 hours. When they see me coming on the four-wheeler, they all line up to the gate. They know we're going to move to a fresh patch of grass. and Are just you just happy using a little bit of that electric it's wire? It's a single, single electric wire fence. You know, the perimeter's a little better, but I mean, these cattle train very easily and they know what the game there's usually we actually have a lead steer on my home farm his name is igor he weighs about 2800 pounds he's been around about six years <laughs> igor he, sounds scary and, yes and he's almost human smart i mean he knows exactly where to stand where he'll be the first in line to go into a paddock when i reel the tape up you know he's sitting there waiting on me and when he knows it, where he's headed he knows he? where he's headed and when it's time <laughs> when it's time to move the animals uh, around the farm he, he's he's the lead animal i just i just call him my name and igor follows right along so it's been fun. It was amazing to watch. We were watching people doing, you know, the first few days of it. And there was definitely confusion with the cattle at first, but it wasn't a week until mm-hmm. they no. had it figured out. They're really smart. Because I want those sunflowers over there. I want that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. off they go, and they line up. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. They're amazing creatures. And what's also fun to watch is is uh, we do a lot of multi-species. We have summer annuals, and we'll have... We'll have vetches and we'll have oh, rye yeah. grasses and 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 they actually learn how to eat those sunflower heads too. They think that's great sport when the sunflower blooms. We actually had those. Somebody along the way told me that cattle love kudzu, and I remember like late seventies into the eighties, it was going to eat the south. All right, and they were spraying the most horrible chemicals you could right. ever come up. Right, they did, and they, if they just would have let it onto their farm. Mm-hmm. Now, kudzu is an interesting plant. Uh, we're we're too far north in northern Missouri; it won't it won't survive. But I mean, it's uh, it, it was viewed as a noxious weed, and that was and that it was released just for road bank control, you know, roads, and then it kind of spread. But it doesn't go very far in the pasture because cattle eat it just like candy, just like uh, Johnson grass is another yeah. another weed in in the south, and it makes great pasture because cattle love to eat that as well. So is it just that old notion that a nice flat green was picturesque and perfect, and it's hard for them to accept the clumps of you know, looking a little ragged mm-hmm. just upsets their. Uh, the, it's just not the way their granddaddy did it. Seems no. to be a bit of the problem. Exactly. No, and it's it's part of the problem. But what's fun is what you do with soil health. I mean, it's. Uh, I tell anybody in the managed grazing world when you get into this. Uh, after about two years, you need to increase your stocking capacity because if not, you're going to have more grass to have animals. And I think now I'm probably producing three to four times as much forage as this land would have done. When I took over this farm, I bought it from my parents 
I, I actually kind of retired from the large family farm or uncle's farm, and then I went. I bought my parents out a smaller property, 300 acres. But the soil organic matter, a lot of that was down around one to one and a half percent, which is very low. It, it was it was on one of the stagecoach roads, so it was one of the first land to be tilled in the 1800s. So it had a pretty abusive history. I've raised the organic mantle level on a lot of that land now to 4% or better. And and what happens when you raise organic matter, you increase soil water holding capacity dramatically, and that's what soil regeneration is. There's some microlyza fungi. They're the little critters that live on the soil roots, and when the plants are pulling in uh, carbon uh, from the atmosphere, it goes into the plant, and the mycorrhiza fungi pick it off the root hairs, and that's what's stored as is stored as carbon, and that's your that's your uh, that's your rich deep black topsoil. And it's I have a friend up in northern uh, North Vermont, Abe Collins, and he's probably the number one guy, one of the number one guy in the world for soil regeneration. And with that, uh, Gabe Brown, also in North Dakota, is the other another most well-known name. But Abe took me on his farm in 2008, and it was a blue clay gumbo river bottom, which is really nasty stuff, and it's just like concrete. And he had flood irrigated it for dairy, you know, grazing, uh, grass-fed dairy. But he was injecting with the uh, with the special plow out of Australia. It's a Rome. It's I forget the name of it. Key lime plow. That's the tool they use in Australia. And he was injecting raw milk into the ground about 20 inches deep, and it was simply amazing. In three years, he created about 17 feet or 17 inches of organic matter. Wow. And he t- I took a tiling spade out there, and I dug down about 15 to 17 inches. We had a tape measure, and he said, "Just dig anywhere you know, wasn't it? You know, he said, "Just dig a hole wherever you want to." It wasn't any setup deal at all. And it was simply amazing what he'd done there. Now Cornell University only wanted six million dollars, you know, to 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 do the applied research on that, and that's where the problem came. Yeah. But he could take sand in South Florida, and I had a, there's a large farm down there that I was acquainted with, and and I was trying to encourage them to hire him to show him how to do that. He said, I can take sand and convert that into actual uh, grassland, you know, better grassland. In fact, there's a project that Alan Savory's son Roger's working on in the uh, Southern California, um, in, in Death Valley, by the Salton Sea. And I think I think Elon Musk has put a bunch of, they have, there's some national world competition now, how to regenerate, how to reclaim land. Mm-hmm. And they picked the worst spot on planet Earth, which is by the Salton they Sea. They sure did. <laughs> and, he's, and I've been tasked to try to figure out how to move some of the ground beef coming out of there. That's a project he's asked me to be involved in. But there, there's a national competition, and they're trying to acquire land, and they're trying to put this thing together. But, uh, but he said, if I can make the desert turn back to grassland in the Salton Sea, I'll have a, I'll have a home run pitch. He's yeah. covered like three of the most amazing the mycorrhizal fungi, the the connection between the plants. There was one research study that stressed plants, usually in drought conditions, will put more sugar into the ground for their mycorrhizal and and and, and fungi and microbe friends then it will keep for itself mm-hmm. knowing that they're helping out their partners right there's a certain species on this planet that could learn a lot from that just just in a tablespoon of soil abe collins would tell you there's a billion microorganisms there's things that are so small you can't even see but yep. when you look at what goes on on the root hairs of a, of a healthy plant it's amazing and things like you know in commercial agriculture we put fungicides on you know for certain insects and things and and the really hardcore soil regeneration people will tell you you're just killing all your soil bacteria all your soil nutrients so you that's the beauty of grassland you don't apply those sort of things anyway we have an unfair advantage there were guys that were showing that soil it was essentially talcum powder mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. point something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but Treating it properly, it doesn't take long. And mm-hmm. I learned more about dung beetles than I ever thought I could. Once they show up and are back in the game, they're yep. aerating, they're moving it, and, yeah, you'll get that great black topsoil again. And the thing people don't mention, and this isn't being climate whatever, black soil pulls carbon out of the atmosphere exactly. all by itself. We could fix the whole problem if we would just fix our cattle land amen right there and and actually i took a picture of a cow patty here about a week ago i was so impressed with the dung beetle they had these little holes and i, I mean not many yeah. people take pictures of, 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 <laughs> of cattle manure but i had a i'm saving that for a slide someday i was i was impressed because, and there's all different sizes of dung beetles oh, yeah. and now the ones that are the size into your thumb those are the those are the home run players the you punchers know, uh, the punchers you don't see that many of those around but uh, uh we were discussing alan savior earlier but he was actually actually called in about six years ago to the House of Lords and he was a you know he wasn't a politician they brought him in to speak to a joint session which is a really rare event in, in England 
and he gave a presentation on on global warming. It wasn't about you know killing smokestacks. It was about growing more grass. He said mm-hmm. the easiest way to solve this problem would be to bring the grassland back to northern Africa, and it's doable. In fact, his son and Abe Collins actually had a project in uh, the UAE about 10 years ago. They went over there and drove around for three days. There's uh, about 200 feet of sand over a lot of the UAE, what, you know, wow. where the land. But they found two or three, only two or three native plants that should have been there, you know, from eons ago. Now, Northwest Australia, different story. There's no, you know, that could be brought back quickly because, you know, the soil's still there. I mean, it's just a matter of changing the uh, hoof action and, and changing that. But but if Roger pulls this project off in in the, in the Salton Sea, that'll be a that'll be a, there'll be a lot of news coverage that on that. That's really exciting. That'll be a, that project you may want to follow. You're not too far away. No, I I think Alan Savory. That's the TED talk where he admits that killing those ten thousand elephants was the worst mistake he yeah, ever made. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's an amazing. Exactly. exactly. Anybody who's interested in any of this, start there. It will get you right into a, a well, swimming pool. You're going to swim in for a long time. Right. Definitely. I guess it seems that. From the stuff you're saying, it seems that the knowledge and the techniques and the technology to kind of make big changes on a worldwide level on both the way we eat in terms of health, the way it affects the planet as a whole, the health of the soil and the health, you know, it it basically all tie together, speaking Mm -hmm. of holistic, right? It seems like there's something there. So it seems like there's knowledge there, there are techniques there, there are experiments being done that are not even experiments anymore where there's, we know that some of this stuff works. What would you say are the main obstacles in the way of making that happen on a more wide-scale level to, to really make a difference? One, one bit of good news is an organization called the grassfedexchange.com, and I was a founding member of that thing about 11 or 12 years ago. I give credit to several people above me that set that together. Um, but it was put together to have an annual celebration of what we're trying to do, and it's fascinating the number of young people that have an interest in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a couple people have come forth and donated money. We have a scholarship program. We'll bring in 20 or 30 high school, college-age students that have an interest. And there's just a collective enthusiasm in the room. Uh, probably it's been going on maybe 15 years now. The, the COVID problem has sure. messed things up. I think the next gathering is going to be in Dallas-Fort Worth. But we've had them in Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Adam in uh, Rapid City, you've been in California, you've been in Georgia. But the encouraging thing is there's a lot of young people that have a fascinating interest in trying to bring this back. So yep. I, I think that's where you have to start. You have to get there's – there's enough nucleus in, in rural America. And then the other thing is if you're trying to get involved in, in agriculture today – uh, Greg Judy's a prime example in Missouri, and he actually bootstrapped his way in. He actually would go to landowners that had a mess, you know, doctors and lawyers in central Missouri that owned land, didn't take care of it. He would offer to bring in cattle for aesthetic purposes. He said, I'll put the fence around it. I'll provide the water. He said, if you'll provide the land, I'll clean this mess up and make it look a lot better. Mm-hmm. And he would bring in goats to kill, to eat the brush. And nice. he's a very clever guy. He's a well-written author, and he's probably makes more money speaking now than he does farming. But to his credit, he actually has got the blueprint and and uh, uh, there's several folks out there uh, Greg Judy is somebody that you would follow but there's if you go to the grass-fed exchange there's a lot of information in that website if you can you know all the all the conferences we've had in the past a lot of that a lot of those tapes are actually free of charge in there so we've you know there's a there's a knowledge base I've just encouraged my son's interested in this whole thing he's very savvy uh, very smart in fact, all three of my kids have developed a good knowledge of this thing about food and nutrition. Um, you know, they're they all eat like they should eat, and and uh, my middle daughter's quite a warrior. You know, she's trades and runs and eats eats correctly, and so it's kind of fun to see the younger generation picking up on this because you can lead a much better life if you eat correctly. It's funny we have a similar problem uh, here with when it comes to lemon trees and orange trees that folks put on their around their giant houses up in the hills. And they just let it rot. So uh, I work with an organization called Food Forward where we'll go pick those for them. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, it ends up in the hands of migrant farm workers, which is a real strange circle. Hmm. But it's just amazing what people will just let rot on the trees because I don't want to be bothered with it. Mm -hmm. You can have one hungry person in this country. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the uh, idea of grocery stores that just dump good food 
into uh, into the garbage. But it some, seems uh, to be madness. I think in France it's illegal to do, and they actually have like refrigerators they'll put into homeless areas so folks can at least just get mm-hmm. the food. No, there's some cattle feeders that I've heard. I mean, I think church true story. Walmart, what they throw away is just studying the large grocery stores. Yeah, there's actually livestock people that will actually uh, pay them a little something. You know, the trucking, but they'll they'll bring out truckloads of just vegetables that they that they've tossed out. You know, they didn't take care of properly. But it's just it's stunning what we throw away in this country. We could yeah. certainly do better. We, we can certainly do better. I, I I'll second that motion. And it used to be. One of my employees actually moonlights in a Sam's uh, store as a meat cutter at night. And it used to be they would, if they had something that was out of date, they could take it to a nursing home or they could take it or you got some value out of it. And then uh, then someone decreed up on high, you can't, uh, we can't do that anymore. You know, they what? just throw Regulations away. getting in the way? Oh, yeah. What are you oh, saying? Well, there's regulations. This can't be possible. You know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a brand new thing we've created here in the last five years. Oh. I guess the thing that seems crazy is that you know one end you have a scenario where you get better health for people better health for the environment better health for all the animals involved uh it's like it seemed like a slam dunk all across the board the traditional argument was oh that model you know any model that basically requires uh, increased health increased taking care of the planet is too costly so the standard argument was the economy versus basically everything mm. that's good Clearly, from what you're saying, I seem to gather that that's not how you view it, that you feel that there's a way to make it work economically in dollars and cents that also does all the good stuff, mm-hmm. where there is no clash between these two aspects. If you can expand, because that I, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing that that's one of the main obstacles in a lot of people's mind who are profiting according to the current model on why they don't want to change. Maybe there are other factors, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but... Well, I've always said for a long time, I think eventually, when we started this thing in 2000, we were way ahead of the curve. No one knew what we had. Um, but I thought within 20 years, you'd see a paradigm change. And I think it started to change in 2006 when Food Inc. came out. That was a, that was mm-hmm. the movie that really kind of went viral. And I think just from the calls, we I used to answer the phone all the time and then talking to consumers. And I think the light started coming on in 2006. I think that's a 20-year paradigm shift. So I think you're going to reach, I think 50% of the consumers will eat better, will have the knowledge to eat better. 50% is, are still going to consume what tastes good. And we have to admit, you know, American agriculture is probably the number one agriculture in the world today. We can produce a lot of food and produce it cheaply and safely. And, you know, food safety and, and meat production is far better than it was 30 years ago. Anybody in the meat industry will tell you, you know, that we do a much better job than we ever used to do. So we have the safest, most bountiful food supply in the world, and the American farmer needs to be complimented for that. But for the folks that really want to go the extra mile, that's kind of where we step in. You know, it takes... You can finish a, a grain-fed animal in about 14 months, and from birth to harvest in our project takes about 24 to 28 months, takes more time, more management skills. But we're also doing a lot of good for Mother Earth in the process. And, and uh, you know, Cows Will Save the World, I think, is another book out there that's kind of a clever title. But but when you see what a ruminant animal can do for the landscape, and, and that includes sheep and goats, uh, my son's in the sheep and goat business, that's actually probably more economical than a bovine. I mean, they're so they're more efficient. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's it's it, after I've seen what I've seen in the last twenty years, just the transformations I've seen with farms and property. And this is done. But the whole key is, and I heard Alan Savory give a presentation in nineteen ninety three or four, oh. and there was about a hundred people in the room, and and. Uh, Jim Garish was a legendary University of Missouri forage man. He was a Scottish guy. You never argued with him because you would always lose. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sitting in the third row because my hearing in the best, and Savory's speaking, and Garish is behind me. And I'll never forget the moment. He made the tragic mistake of challenging Alan Savory in his home turf, so to speak. And Alan just spit him up and made him. I mean, it's the first time I ever saw Jim Garish really had a defeated look on his face. And uh, he said, well, we've been doing all this for years. But he, Jim didn't quite fully understand everything he, you know, would say every new. And he spoke for an hour pretty much off the cuff. And he said, I want you to all stand up. I want you to clear half of the room. And he'd already done the math. And we, we cleared half the room. He said, now you've gone from X stock density, you know, from 25,000 pounds to now you're 80,000 pounds of stock. Now I want you to clear three quarters of the room. We were standing there almost shoulder to shoulder, and he'd done the math. Now you're 200,000 pounds of stock density, and then you can really make change happen fast. 
that's how he, that's that was the end of the end of the lecture right there. And you talk about talking about making an impression on somebody. The light really went off in my head at that point. So, when's the, when's the last time you guys tilled? Um, those pastures. You know, the only the only tillage we would ever do. We have some land where we put an annual crop where we have to, and it depends upon what happened the year before and whether the, what the rainfall was. Sometimes you pug up some property and it's, it, you know, you need to do a little tillage to help it. But if you can avoid it altogether, much better game. And we and we live in an area where we ran, rains 40 inches. If you were in North Dakota where Gabe Brown is, he never tills, never has to, you know, never has the mud. We we actually have some animals down on the Gulf Coast in, in South Alabama, and the soil there is like 50% sand. It used to be a beach, you know, or ocean bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. It can rain nine inches and you'll never leave a hoofprint out there. So the fact that corridor on I-10 through South Louisiana uh, along the Gulf Coast is one of the number one cattle areas in the United States. If you went back there 60 years ago, there were tons and tons of cow-calf operations in that area. And then the market kind of went bad, and the timber companies came along and said, we're going to give you a contract to plant pine trees. And almost all that pasture lands turned into pine trees. Wow. And uh, But we still have, there's remnants of it in South. We're, we're, we're we have animals on the ground about three miles from Mobile Bay and 15 miles from from the Gulf of Mexico and Alabama, and it's just in from February 1st to the 15th of April. There's no place in America those animals gain three to four pounds a day down there on those winter grasses. The climate's just perfect, and uh, it's just all. I, I go down there in January. I'm kind of distressed. Ah, oh, they haven't done all that well. I go back the first of April, and it's amazing how big they are. You know, animals thrive in that environment. Did you guys come up through the 101? And then up to 33? Right, right. Did you see all the strawberries? Yeah, I saw the strawberries. They were picking strawberries today. Isn't yep. that crazy? We, yeah. we get three full growing yeah. seasons out here. I was surprised it's to see the strawberry endless. picking right now, but they were picking berries today. It's just nonstop, and they will till that not mm-hmm. long from mm-hmm. now, but mm-hmm. they'll be back in three months. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. That's the strawberry capital of the United States just there oh, yeah. in this area right yep. here, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the strawberry right. festival, and then a little further up is the garlic festival. So it's always the same people selling stuff. They just put a different sticker on it. I think I saw what lemon trees or avocados up on the hills when we turned the corner. Came oh, yeah. Up. yeah, all over the yeah. place around right. here. Right. And chirimoyas. Are you familiar with that? That's a brand new one on me. Oh, it looks like it looks like a little old armadillo that's curled up, but it's green, or maybe like a spiky hangar. Uh, yeah, it's up towards. Uh, Carpinteria and uh-huh. then to Santa Barbara, they had some sort of avocado weevil that killed most of the trees. And there's a gentleman, I think he's from Ecuador. He's like, well, try these out. And what do they call them? Cream apple something? Anyway, it's a fruit, so we can't have mm. it. But it's still <laughs> insanely delightful, and it's like a white flesh inside of it. And it's so delicate that they have to be hand-picked out of the trees. Hmm. But the whole food is selling for $14 a pound, and people are gobbling them up just because. So that's kind of going to be the next thing. So there are acres and acres of them going in right now. Interesting. I'll bring you one next time. And you can get a bad one, but when you get a good one, and avocados, it's... Mm -hmm. There was a gentleman that lived on a back road, and he had a little sign up one time, and he's avocados. And they're off. He had like four acres of them. And I had like $2 on me. I was like, oh, these giant avocados. I just want to have one. Sir, I only have $2. Can I please have one? He said, one, you can have four for $2. And when I talk to folks, Kentucky in that area, an avocado is a shriveled little mm-hmm. remnant of itself of by course. the time it gets out there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, moving it's a big part of the problem, isn't it? When it comes to. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that, like, there's nothing, like, close to the source in that sense. That, Our produce uh, here is insane. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of folks, you know, don't you want to see the ocean first? No, I want you guys to come to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. When you right. see this, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it depends a lot. Like where you are clearly makes a difference in terms of what you can do with the environment because obviously what you can grow, what you can, it, it changes mm-hmm. for sure. But shipping the beef with dry ice seems to work quite well. Yep, we've got that down to science. We're shipping 35, 40,000 pounds a week, you wow. know, through FedEx. And uh, the the overnight product just goes with a gel pack. Costs more to put FedEx on an airplane, but the ground products. And we only we only do ground ground one and ground. We have a really good. In fact, we we go anywhere in the United States for a flat price. We've uh, our website. You're not paying any shipping when you go to check out, which is one of the things that always frustrates right. me. When you go to check out on a website, it looks like a fair price, and they just beat you to death. Suddenly, you have a shipping charge. Yeah, well, shipping included yeah. in the price. Right. That should be yeah. on every little <laughs> cell. <laughs> But uh, and I and I also left those avocados out on my uh, and my and my nightly meal. I actually add a half an avocado, which is which is great stuff. There's a lot of fat in that one. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That's, why, that's why it's there. There's a silly show. I think it's called Alone or something like that. But these fools go out and they stick them somewhere in Canada and wait for it to get cold. And good luck, folks. Have a good time. But the thing that they constantly stress is getting fat is the only thing that will mm-hmm. keep you alive. Mm-hmm. So you can have all the sticks you want. But if you don't have animal fat, you're not going to survive. Right. right. It's just an amazing thing for people to learn. And the sad part is when you travel, you know, if you're trying to, you know, if you find a, a hard-boiled egg in a convenience store, you just you just won the lottery. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but I mean, when you when you walk around a convenience store and see what's offered, or 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 an or an airline concourse, you know, it's just hardly anything in there that fits my food category. You know, all, all the protein bars are full of things you shouldn't have. The estrogen and all that sort of stuff is stuck in there, and it's just. Uh, you know, there's a there's a place for some really healthy foods, and I think I think the Americans are starting to wake up. They yeah. are slowly because you can see it. I mean, to do a diabetic uh, diet, well, you're talking you know either unsweetened tea or water. That's pretty mm-hmm. much what you got to mm-hmm. go with, mm-hmm. and you would have to hunt that down. Mm-hmm. I do think it's funny that they're starting these bubbly waters, and I don't know if that's going to last because they're far from delicious and they don't quench anything. But it's almost like, well, if you can't have a Pepsi, you better have a. Semi cherry flavored bubble. bubbler, bubbler, yeah. whatever they call those things. I guess yeah. is that in terms of chicken or an egg kind of question is, do you think it's more customer demand due to ignorance of certain kind of foods that are just trash for you, or is it more because they get pushed, uh, maybe because of economic reason by certain companies, then the customer demand is there? Like, do you, which one do you think? Like, is it more a matter of educating people about it to make better food choices? Or is it more a matter of convincing companies that they can make money not poisoning people? One of the things that I've learned is, we're, and this is kind of a sad story, but a lot of our business comes from people who have had some kind of a health scare. You know, they, they've mm-hmm. got a cancer scare. They, you've got, uh, you know, you've got soccer moms with children that have allergies, autoimmune diseases, and all of a sudden they're being told to look for healthier sources of food. That's where a lot of people get, get educated. You do have the soccer moms. They're very astute and well-read and pay attention, and, and, and they're starting to listen to some of this sort of conversation. They make life changes before they have problems. Uh, you have senior citizens, because uh, we apply to all ages. I mean, I actually have employees that start their babies out on brown sugar, which is an organ sausage we make, and liverwurst, which is, uh, in fact, the, both recipes go back to the 1800s. I've been lucky enough to find some really old recipes that, in fact, liverwurst is the number four bestseller on our website. You would never believe that. Wow. A mixture of heart, liver, kidney, and, and, and ground beef. And uh, and the brown sugar just says liver and ground beef. But for a, for a baby just learning how to eat, it's fully cooked. You just slice it off and, and uh, no preparation whatsoever. But it's a real convenience food. And a lot of a lot of doctors promote both the brown sugar and liverwurst as a really healthy source because you can you can add liver and it's seasoned well. I mean, you know, there's a little liver in there. But if you're not a liver person, I mean, brown sugar is pretty good way to get your liver. You know, you can kind of sneak it into your diet, and you don't even know it's hardly even there. So, but then you have senior citizens, you know, that have uh, have means and they are aging and they realize they've got aches and pains. And they thought, well, maybe we ought to maybe cut some of the sugar mm-hmm. out and they get to looking around. So a lot of it's self-awareness based on several reasons, whether it's, um, and the food companies, I mean, we're a, we're a very small player in the food business, but, but you're starting to see uh, sugar-free bacons. I've seen, I think Applegate's got one now. I see at the football game uh, yesterday in the Rose Bowl, Oregon versus UCLA, I saw Coca-Cola was advertised sugar-free coca-cola that was a placard that they were throwing up there so i think the i think the corporate titans are starting to figure out that there's a much bigger audience out here for sugar-free foods than what they realize that's kind of an eye-opener on me yesterday when i saw this coca-cola sugar-free right how is bison coming along because 20 years ago that's when ted started the montana grills Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they haven't really spread they're not out here yet but he said he was going to do them slowly so that he could build his herd up but man talk about a great meat Bison's an interesting project. I mean, Ted Turner put together a lot of real estate in the United States. In fact, I think at one time he was the largest, you know, maybe Bill Gates has upped him a game here lately. But Ted Turner put those ranches together, produced a lot of bison, but it was pretty much all grain-fed bison. Those are going oh. into the restaurant chains. His son runs it now. Now, I think there's one operation in Montana through the rumor mill, uh, North Star Bison and Wild Idea are the two companies we work with, North Stars up in northern Wisconsin and Wild Ideas Rapid City. I think they've convinced one of those Turner ranches 
to actually convert it over to grass-fed. The, you know, the managers would like to, to add to the supply. Nice. And there's a limited supply of pure grass-fed bison. Uh, if you're after lean meat, bison's your game. I mean, you know, like the ground beef we sell is 99, 98% lean. And the bison people, what they, the bison produces fat on the outer, outer rind of the animals. So they use it for summer heat cooling and in winter winter mm-hmm. cold weather cooling so the bison or the fat off of bison is so revered that the bison people will skim the fat off just to make a bison hot dog i mean it's very difficult to make anything with it, like a sausage because you, you don't have enough fat there bisons are incredibly lean uh we were in a restaurant one time we ordered uh, it was in a, it was in a montana grill in atlanta years ago and we ordered uh, uh we ordered the the beef ribeye that he had this i think he had i think he had a grass-fed ribeye in there and he had this bison grain-fed bison and we we cut him up and chased you know exchanged the flavors mm-hmm. but uh but bison's expensive but we sell lots of bison there's people that there's a lot, a lot of demand for that so but it's uh but but if you're after cla and, and omega-3s and and the good fats then you really need to be buying you know, grass-fed beef and grass-fed lamb lamb is a really good source of it as well uh, and, the, and the butter and the cheese. I mean, you get good CLA and omega-3s out of grass-fed butter and cheese. That's the other magic food. Do Americans seem a bit resistant to lamb? I don't think. I mean, what I see, no. We're, we're struggling to get enough lamb right now. I mean, I've, nice. uh, we've got uh, lamb sales are up. And uh, when you take a Katahdin Dorper, which is the two hair sheep, these are the, the sheep that don't produce wool, and you you cut a lamb steak out of that, or you know lamb rib chops or loin chops, and that's just really good eating. I mean, my father used to trade a neighbor when I was growing up alfalfa hay for mutton. Now, he was a World War II veteran, <laughs> ate a lot of mutton in the army, and I thought it was the most disgusting thing. I just despised it every time my mother cooked cooked mutton. We didn't do it very often. I didn't. I couldn't hardly get it down. So we started selling grass fed lamb. I was so. I was so pained by the mutton experience, and I was a small <laughs> child. I was in a restaurant in Connecticut one time in Stanford, Connecticut, and and we'd sold some lamb chops. And he said, "I want to, I want to fix some for you." And I said, oh, "I'll be a good sport." It was just wonderful, you know. But if you, if you closed your eyes, um, very very good lamb like that. Well, you can almost be fooled. It's just beef. I mean, there's the flavor is a little different, but I mean, it was good. And we've sold lots of lamb. Nice. So the way you work is that you contract with um, with people raising, having their ranches in various parts of the country who meet your standards, mm-hmm. and then you get the goods from them, and then from there you ship to, right. to your customers, that kind of the setup? Yeah, it started out just 100% grass-fed beef off our own farms. There's four founding members, and we were able to produce right. the beef and and um, and then they got to the point where we couldn't produce enough, and then and through the grass-fed exchanges where I met like-minded people like myself, and so we made connections and networks to that organization. And the other thing, if you poke around our website, you're going to discover we got a little bit of Tasmanian beef in that in that protocol. I met a the I think the number one grass farmer in the world. His name is Mr. John Bruce, and he came to the United States in 2002. I like the Australians; they don't they don't work as hard as maybe I do, and they take their wife and go in a 30-day sabbatical and and i found out i finally figured it out he came to the united states he went trout fishing for a week in colorado he had to do a work stop in missouri for the three or four days to be able to qualify the trip you know as a grazing experience and then he went to georgia and hunted deer for a week he's a he likes to hunt so anyway we became good friends one of the finer people i've ever met on this journey and for four or five years we would exchange photographs and he has nine miles of ocean coastline in Tasmania. It's like a little peninsula that sticks out. It's the most fantastic farm I've ever seen in my life. Uh, He actually uses zero inputs, no salt, no mineral, because it's all coming off a rain evaporation. And it's a volcanic soil, and he can get gains that will be four and five pounds a day for two or three months out of the year. It's the most magical thing I've ever seen. I've sent sent a bricks meter down there, but what's going on, he's been managing that property for 40 years, storing carbon, and I think he has soil organic matter over 17%. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. He finally showed me the soil test and I was down there several years ago, 15 to 17% organic matter. So that's just like rocket fuel for an animal. Do you think it helps that it's on that peninsula surrounded by ocean water? Because our little trick around here is like mid-season in the garden, Mm -hmm. we go to the ocean and get a couple gallons 
and just quarter cup in a... Well, you are, there's a book written about that. Uh, you may have found it, but there was an Arkansas study. A doctor, this was done 50 or 60 years ago. He got a rail car full of salt water from the, from the Gulf, and he put tomatoes out, and he had a, you only put on so much salt water. Right. And then he introduced some sort of a viral problem that killed all the regular tomatoes, and, and the saltwater tomatoes were fine. There's there's a there's some magic involved. You, you're very astute. I stumbled across it, and we just tried it, and we literally, scientifically, we, we grow in straw bales because the soil in Oxnard is basically just sand mm-hmm. and salt. Mm-hmm. But by doing these straw bales on top of the backyard, now the whole backyard has live topsoil in it again. Yep, yep, so we have yep. converted our tiny little eighth of an acre. But if we could do that everywhere, I uh, mean, just to see the life that comes to our mm-hmm, yard now, mm-hmm. the bees, the butterflies, mm-hmm, the birds, yep. it's like a tiny little oasis, and yep. they all know where it is, and they're allowed to poop all over it because they're just helping us out. That's right. No, it's neat stuff. There, I'll send you the book. There, there's a, actually, a, I've got it on my bookcase. I'll send you the title. It's, a, it's Adding Salt Water. Uh, there's a, there's some magic. What you're, what you're getting there is all the minerals. Salt water has the same mineral profile as human blood. Believe no, it or not. I must have read the same because that's yeah, exactly what yeah, they said. Yeah, like, and right. it's usually something crazy. You never. I need a tiny bit of boron to make my tomatoes mm-hmm, happier, mm-hmm. and you would never notice seek that out. But when you introduce it to them, mm-hmm. yeah, we did some with and some without, and within a week, it was a three or four right, inch difference. Right, and right, right, yeah, neat stuff. I came along late, but I love it now. <laughs> yep, yep, you're eating well. Nothing better than picking something out of your backyard. Well, that's a lot of education in a short time. <laughs> There's a lot of science packed in that probably takes. I, I love how you can just, just throw it out there, like, and da, 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 you know, you have it all dialed in in your brain. I'm, I'm guessing it's a lifetime of studying and experimenting and reading and the practice, the reading. The that's fantastic. Um, anything else you want to throw out there for people, whether it's uh, resources, whether it's an idea, whether it's something you're doing, whether anything? Well, I, I just encourage people to look at what we're doing and try to try to follow our footsteps. You know, I think there's it takes a lot of passion to do what we've done. I was laughed at for the first four or five years I started on this journey. I mean, I came out of commercial uh, agriculture. My local peers thought I lost my mind. You know, I think my wife thought I lost my mind. Probably my kids are for a while, you know, because we went through the valley of shadow of death for the first several years trying to market this thing. And then eventually we finally got some traction. And... Uh, one of my favorite stories is that I stumbled into Miss Marianne Burroughs, who's a famous writer for the New York Times and food author. I had no idea how powerful she was. She calls me mm-hmm. one day. I was just kind of a neophyte. She said, Mr. Wood, I want to sample your ribeyes and strips and deliver to my getaway cabin up in northern New Hampshire. And I sent those to her. She said, I'll let you know. And, of course, I never heard from her. I called her and emailed her and never would never did get a read back. And I thought, well, she probably overcooked them or whatever. <laughs> Sometime in October... You know, a month or two later, I get a terse message from her. Granted, she grew up in the Bronx. You know, she's pretty hard scrabble. <laughs> Mr. Wood, I just ordered a couple of ribeyes from my getaway cabin in Pennsylvania this weekend. She says, if you cannot deliver these by 5 o'clock on Friday, I want you to refund my money immediately. Just right kind of right in your face. And uh, it was 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. It was a pretty rugged address, and we were using DHL at the time. And I called that DHL guy. I said, whatever you do, get those things delivered. And it showed up at like 4.55 p.m. And I didn't hear from her on Monday, but on Tuesday she called me up. She said, Mr. Wood, those are probably two of the best ribeyes I ever cooked. And I didn't realize how much power that had in it. I, I had a 90-some-odd-year-old customer in Connecticut. I knew he was in a food mess. I said, you know Miss Burroughs? He said, oh, I know her well. She about broke me in 1963. <laughs> she wrote a negative article about whatever he was doing. He said, you want to stay on her good side? And I said, well, I'm trying. And um, But anyway, she... Gave us a two-sentence lead in the, her holiday shopping guide. You know, I, well, this won't amount to much. But then, it, then I found out later it went in Chicago Tribune, you know, San Francisco Chronicle. And then the, then December 27th of 2003 was a mad cow episode in the United States. And she called me. Mr. Wood, what do you think about the mad cow? I said, well, Miss Burroughs, I think the Chicago Cubs... I think I think we will, we will never have another mad cow in this country out of U.S. herd unless the Chicago Cubs win the World Series back to back, and she just yeah. about fell out of her chair. <laughs> and I think she published that somewhere. But anyway, I said, you know, we have 70 million acres of soybeans, and we just can't afford to feed animal protein back to animals. It was a Canadian animal where the problem came from. But after that deal, there we finally got started getting some traction, and we started making our rounds around the country. But I just encourage people, you know, food is medicine. 
uh, and know your food, know your farmer. You need to know the story behind it, and uh, uh, try to make the choices. And 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 you can have your you can have your oranges. I'm not going to hold you fall against that. You know, Just everything in moderation is fun. Even moderation needs moderation. <laughs> But uh, but I do encourage people to increase their 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 fat intake, especially good fats like grass-fed animal fats. I think fats the magic. You know that's why my joints are good. That's why my brain still works. And you know I think that's I see so many people suffering, and I think diet is, plays a huge role in that. Well, I'd have got no push, but your London broil makes some of the greatest green chili recipe stew that I got out here, and that just we look forward to it every time we're going to make good it. Good for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Funky music means one thing. The end of another fine episode of the Drunken Towers podcast. Thank you, John. The meat's great. I can tell you that. What more do you need to know? 100% for sure. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Thank you also, I guess we didn't mention in the open, thank you to Daisy House for the everlasting soundtrack that we keep using episode after episode we deeply appreciate it yeah it's i just there's no way to separate the two at this point no it's the drunken taoist team that's where it's at so appreciated yeah they they put out good music too it is going to be christmas time i think you go to bank camp slash daisy house on the internet and you can actually find their records and buy a buy a single or two from them sweet very cool and i think with that is it a wrap yeah turkey time it's a wrap Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Sweet. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at RichieMon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo cazzo, in questo caso, le providenza di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, huh? Oh, man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about, translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> no, that's a bit too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. Why?